Tonight I'd like to speak about one section in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness. And you might recall the Buddha opened this discourse with really a lion's roar of the potential of liberation. And it was such a clear and unambiguous declaration that these teachings on mindfulness lead to awakening. He said bhikkhus. And remember the term bhikkhu is often translated as monk, or bhikkhuni nun, but when it's used in this way, bhikkhus refers to anyone who is on the path of practice. So he's really talking to us here. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha, of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbāna, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a very direct statement. This is the direct path to awakening, paying attention. Paying attention to what? What are the four foundations? Well, as you know, there's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and that includes all the different mind states. Then the fourth foundation is called mindfulness of the Dhamma, which refers to different categories of experience. It's how different mind factors function. So some function as hindrances, some function as factors of enlightenment, some function as the six sense bases. So that fourth foundation really includes how things function, and we become aware of that. (coughs) It's important to understand that all of these teachings were given by the Buddha for the purpose of liberating the mind, liberating us from suffering. He's talking about awakening, he's talking about enlightenment, he's talking about freedom, not simply about getting more comfortable in our lives, and not simply about working out our own particular personal stories. Although these things also happen on our path, but there's something bigger that the Buddha is pointing to. It's addressing the very fundamental, basic question that faces all beings, the question of birth, of aging, of death. What does it all mean? And is there a way to understand it so that we're free in this cycle, this great cycle, of cyclical existence. Although most of us are living in the world, we're not living as monks or nuns, and there are all the responsibilities and the pleasures and the difficulties of life in the world. For this time on retreat, It's as if we enter a monastery, 
a meditative monastery. And so in this special time, we can hold our practice with this much greater aspiration, not simply trying to kind of work out our lives in a good way, but also to hold this possibility, this possibility of freedom. Sometimes we just get glimpses of this possibility in our practice. And maybe sometimes we get really deeper realizations of it. But in both cases, it transforms the way we live our lives. We step out of the conventional understanding of things. So the section of the sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, that I'd like to discuss this evening is the second of the four foundations. That is mindfulness of feelings. And the Buddha begins this section with a rhetorical question. You know, and it's really, he's speaking to us. And how, bhikkhus, does one, in regard to feelings, abide contemplating feelings? I think first we need to understand what we mean by this word, feelings, because it's the English translation of the Pali word Vedana. But in English, the word feeling has a wide variety of meanings. I looked it up in the dictionary just to see what the English definition... There are 14 different meanings, 14 different usages of the word feeling. So if at times you get confused when we speak about this, it's understandable because we need to know precisely what we're talking about in the use of that term. Because sometimes in English, feelings refer to emotions. I feel happy, I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel excited. So they're referring to the different emotional states. In English, sometimes feelings refer to physical sensations. I feel tightness, I feel pressure. I feel tingling, warmth, whatever. Sometimes it means a general attitude or opinion. For example, the general feeling of the group was to do something. So it's another usage of this word. But in Buddhism, the term Vedana refers to something quite specific. And so when we use feeling in this context, it's helpful to have a very clear understanding of this specific meaning. And it's this meaning that makes it such a profound aspect of our practice. Mindfulness of feeling in this very precise way is one of the master keys to our mind, to understanding our mind. Because it unlocks or reveals the deepest patterns of our conditioning. So as most of you know, the term Vedana from Pali, translated as feeling, means specifically that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, that arises 
in the contact with every moment's experience, with every arising object of experience, right in the moment of that contact, there is a feeling tone. And these feelings arise whether the object is physical, in the body, whether it's mental. So there's a sensation in the body. Sensation arises and we experience it as being it's either pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral. We hear a sound. We experience it as being a pleasant sound, unpleasant sound, neutral. There's a thought or an image in the mind. With every thought, with every image, we experience it as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So the question comes or arises, why is this important? Why did the Buddha single this out and give it a place of such importance? Because he lists feeling in the four foundations of mindfulness. Feeling is one of the five aggregates. Feeling is a key link in the chain of dependent origination. So this is not a trivial aspect of our experience. It's a very key element that we need to focus our attention on in a very precise way. The reason that it's so important, and which you've experienced many times already, is that the feeling tone of experience conditions our reaction to it. It conditions our actions in the world and all the consequences that come from those actions. When we're not mindful, pleasant feeling conditions attachment, conditions desire, conditions clinging. When we're unmindful, unpleasant feeling in any moment conditions aversion, disliking, wanting to get rid of it. Neutral feeling conditions delusion. What's so fantastic, is that these same feelings, which when we're unmindful, condition these three unwholesome tendencies of greed, aversion, and delusion, when we are mindful, these very same feelings become the vehicle of our liberation, become the vehicle of our awakening. So the Buddha elaborates on this when he talks about two kinds of people. So one kind of person he calls the uninstructed worldling. And the other kind of person he calls the instructed noble disciple. Okay, so you have your choice. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, when the uninstructed worldling is contacted by a painful feeling, he or she feels aversion to it feels sorrow, grief, and becomes distraught. And the Buddha uses the example of being pierced or struck by a dart, you know, which is the initial painful feeling, whether it's of a bodily sensation or a mind state. But then for the uninstructed whirling, what follows immediately upon that first dart 
of the unpleasant feeling is another dart of the mental reaction to it. Something unpleasant comes, unpleasant feeling, first dart, we don't like it, we hate it, we want to get rid of it, we resist it, we have aversion to it, there's anger, there's fear. That reaction to it is the second dart. And so we suffer twice. And the second is actually worse than the first. And it doesn't simply stop there. And it's just so interesting when we really pay attention in a careful way to the whole chain of our conditioning. So it's not only the first dart and then the second dart of our reaction. The Buddha goes on to say, being contacted, contacted by painful feeling, one then seeks delight in sensual pleasure. Why? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feeling. And so becomes attached to birth, aging, and death, is attached to sorrow, pain, displeasure, and despair, attached to suffering. Now, in this conditioning of the mind, in our avoidance, you know, our aversion to painful feeling, when we're in the role of uninstructed whirlings, when we don't know how to relate skillfully to it, we just get caught up in this reaction and then seek to alleviate it through different sense pleasures, create all kinds of attachment and clinging, leading to suffering and sorrow, and we're just caught on this wheel. And we see this you know, often in our lives and in the lives of so many people in the world. And all of this follows out of the deeply habituated tendencies in our minds when we're not mindful of the feeling as it first arises. And so just as an experiment, you know, in the course of the day or this evening, just watch how often our actions we do things to avoid some unpleasant feeling. There's a, there's a teaching that would be worth exploring. It talks about how movement masks dukkha. Movement masks suffering. And in the course of a day, it's very instructive to watch What's the cause, what's the conditioning force behind so many of the movements we make, the activities we do? You know, Deepama once told me, Joseph, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant to sit down and get up two days later. <laughs> well, I just laughed. <laughs> And she looked at me. Uh, she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> well, it's very unlikely that anytime soon that's going to happen. <laughs> Why? Because at a certain point it would get too painful 
and there would be the reaction to the pain, and I'd move. And even if sometimes stretch things out, it might be two hours, three hours, you know. Maybe with really good samadhi it stays longer, but at a certain point, something happens, there's some level of discomfort, and we move. That's why we, that's why we stand up. Fine, I'll walk. How long can you walk before it gets uncomfortable? You walk an hour, two hours, three hours, five hours, and then that gets uncomfortable. So you have to lie down. Fine, I'll lie down. Everything will be really comfortable. Try lying down without moving. It doesn't take that long until that gets uncomfortable. And so we move again. Why do we eat? Why do we go to the bathroom? Why do we take showers? It's all the activity, the movement, is to come out of some kind of dukkha, some kind of suffering. And of course it's fine to do all these things. But we should be seeing, actually, the whole process. And see, when is it wise to do these things? When is it unnecessary? When is it simply an unwillingness to be with the painful feeling or the uncomfortable feeling? So we begin to have more choice in our lives, bring more wisdom to it. So then the Buddha also spoke of the instructed noble disciple, which is us at other times. You know, in in our more mindful moments, he said, for the instructed noble disciple, being contacted by painful feeling, one harbors no aversion to it, does not seek delight in sensual pleasures. If one feels a pleasant feeling, one feels it detached. A painful feeling, one feels it detached. A neutral feeling, one feels it detached. And so this is that mirror-like wisdom of the mind that we've spoken about. And when we're resting in the knowing aspect and understanding, experiencing that quality or the nature of the knowing mind, we can see very clearly that the knowing itself is unaffected by whether the feeling is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's simply knowing it. It's pleasant, fine. It's unpleasant, fine. It's neutral, fine. The knowing mind simply knows. Then the Buddha goes on. This bhikkhu is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging, and death who is detached from sorrow, pain, and despair, who is detached from suffering. Now these, these next two lines are just such good reminders. Desirable things do not provoke one's mind. Towards the undesired, one has no aversion. Now just, just even imagine but you know, maybe actually touch the space of the mind that's so open and so simply aware of pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling. Pleasant feeling comes, mind is not pulled into it. Unpleasant feeling comes, there's no resistance, there's no aversion. I mean, can you just even now just get a sense of the ease and the freedom of that? It's a mind of openness. 
So this mindfulness of feeling is not a little thing. This, this is not like just some, you know, byway of practice. The teaching is very clear. You know, this is not complicated. But it's very striking how profoundly and deeply these tendencies of reactivity are conditioned in the mind. So it's simple to understand. It's not easy to do. We're very conditioned you know, in likes and dislikes. We like what's pleasant, we don't like what's unpleasant. Quite a few years ago, I was on a two-month retreat. I was doing it with some friends down at Cape Cod. We had rented a house, and the setting was beautiful. It was right on, you know, overlooking the water, and the setting was ideal. And it was the hardest retreat I've ever done. Just things started coming up. There was intense pain and discomfort in the body. My mind got caught in patterns of unwholesome tendencies. (laughs) Just despair and hopelessness and anguish. I was just, it was, I felt like I had really just touched bottom in this retreat. It was very, very difficult. And over the two months, of course, I became very interested in well, what's going on here, and you know, how am I getting so caught? And as I would be you know, watching all this, at a certain point, I became aware of the trigger point for all that reactivity. There was a certain thought in my mind. And when I didn't catch the thought, it was a certain, certain unpleasant thought, when I didn't catch it, I was gone. It was like 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, half an hour later, I would kind of wake up from this whole flood of thought and feeling and emotion. And then at times, my mind would just be in this open, spacious place watching it all. The difference between these two states, you know, of being really caught in the reactivity and the openness of simply being with all the unpleasantness, the difference between these two states was so noticeable and so striking. And I kept wondering, why does my mind go to the suffering? You know, because I was having the experience of it being at ease and open. And then I find myself in the midst of these storms falling into patterns again and again of hope and fear. You know, hope that all the dukkha would go away, fear that it wouldn't go away, and just tied up in that. It was a very good lesson for me in the depth and the power of habituated patterns. You know, these, this is a significant conditioning in our mind attachment to what's pleasant, aversion to what's unpleasant. So it's worthy of our attention. You know, this is not this is not a superficial pattern. 
But I also saw not only how deeply conditioned the pattern of reactivity was, of aversion to the unpleasant, attachment to the pleasant, but I also was tremendously inspired by the fact that in the midst of what was very difficult, in any moment, and there were many moments of this, of also awakening to it, of actually being able to be mindful, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, noting it, freeing the mind, for that moment at least, of the pattern of this conditioning. In any moment, no matter what it is that's going on in our practice, we can apply this aspect of mindfulness of feeling. The Buddha goes on, he says, that one should make an end to suffering without abandoning underlying tendencies of desire for pleasant feelings, aversion towards unpleasant ones, and ignorance towards neutral ones, this is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering without abandoning these tendencies, right? desire for the pleasant, aversion for the unpleasant, delusion about the neutral ones, it is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering by abandoning these tendencies, this is possible. So this is a pretty radical statement. He says, our freedom, our liberation, depends on the abandoning of these deeply conditioned patterns. So we might hear this and get mildly discouraged. (laughs) You know, is this even possible? You know, can I really do this? Is it possible to really free myself, to free the mind from the pattern of desire for pleasant, aversion to unpleasant? The secret of this teaching, and the Buddha is saying this can be done, and we can do this, is to realize that we do it in a moment. We do it for a moment. And as one, one teacher said, The whole path, the whole practice, consists of short moments many times. So we don't have to take on kind of the, the idea, this huge burden of how will I ever be able to free my mind from desire and aversion. It's more in this moment. Can I be mindful of the feeling, mindful of the pleasant, mindful of the unpleasant? And in that moment of mindfulness, we are free of those tendencies. And so this is what actualizes the practice for us. So how do we put this into practice? How do we do this? In the sutta, the Buddha goes on to give very simple and explicit instructions. He said, when feeling a pleasant feeling whether it's associated with a sensation in the body or a thought or an emotion, whatever. When feeling a pleasant feeling, one knows, I feel a pleasant feeling. When feeling an unpleasant feeling, one knows, I feel an unpleasant feeling. When feeling a neutral feeling, one knows, I feel a neutral feeling. 
Well, the Buddha is pointing us to the very simple and direct recognition of the feeling aspect of each moment's experience. He's saying, pay attention to that. Because it's that feeling aspect which, when unnoticed, conditions these very deeply habituated tendencies. We don't need to judge these feelings, we don't need to analyze them, we don't need to compare, we don't even have to understand why they're coming. It's simply to know, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, this is neutral. Or Ajahn Sumedho, you know, who's, uh, was Ajahn Chah's great Thai master's chief Western disciple, he teaches in England a lot now. He has a very nice way of expressing this aspect of mindfulness. He says, it's to recognize pleasant feeling is like this. Unpleasant feeling is like this. Neutral feeling is like this. That's all. It's, it's the simple recognition. Oh, this feeling is like this. We're aware, we're awake, we're mindful. So one way of practicing this, you might take periods of time, you know, and just when it feels intuitively that you, know, you might like to experiment with this, take some period of time where you're simply noting the changing quality of feeling moment after moment. You know, so you're just with the flow, whether it's of the breath or sensations in the body or thoughts, emotions, whatever it is that's coming up, and you're just taking some period of time and you're noting Oh, pleasant, pleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant, pleasant. You know, you're just paying attention to that aspect of experience moment after moment. It will help you refine your awareness of this feeling tone. Sometimes these feeling tones may be very clear, you know, very obvious, and sometimes not. So as you're going through the day, pay attention at first to the times that are very obvious, you know, that are strikingly pleasant or strikingly unpleasant as a way of attuning to this factor. You know, you're sitting and the mind is very restless. The body is very restless or filled with anger or aversion or fear or something. It's noticeably unpleasant. You don't kind of have to figure it out, you know, with what feeling is this. So pay attention. Just pay attention and note, oh, unpleasant, unpleasant. And focus the mind or sensitize the mind to that quality of unpleasantness. So we really become mindful of what that means in our experience, not theoretically. There's a strong pain in the body, and you're with it. Spend some time noting and noticing the unpleasantness. Or the sun finally comes out. 
Oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. You know, and you probably had that experience after all those days of rain, and then it was a very pleasant feeling. You know, sometimes when you're sitting and maybe the mind drops into a very concentrated, calm space. You know, oh, this is very pleasant. Note that, notice that. Or you might notice the second dart. Maybe, you, maybe you're not picking up the first feeling, but you notice the reaction. So be aware of that. Notice the attachment or the clinging or the aversion and let that be the signal, let that be the feedback, the mindfulness bell, to then go back and pay attention to the feeling tone of whatever the experience was. So very often the second dart is the one that wakes us up. You know, the first dart somehow we're oblivious to. So these reactions can often be a very useful feedback to us if we understand them in the appropriate way. Now this morning someone asked a question about fear and talked a little bit uh, about it and of course Miyoshin did as well. It could be very helpful with something like that. Fear could be seen as the second dart. So in addition to learning how to work with the fear itself, it could also be useful to just see what was the trigger point for the fear. Was it a thought? Was it an image? Was it a sensation in the body? And then to note the feeling tone of the trigger point. You follow? And so then seeing, oh, that trigger point, unpleasant, unpleasant, and see what that does in terms of the conditioning process for the fear. All of this leads to a second step in understanding these different feelings that arise. By noting the sequence of them, you know, by noting when they're very strong, by noting the feeling of whatever triggers the reactions, by paying attention in this way, we begin to see very clearly their changing ephemeral nature. The feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral are not some big, solid mass. These feelings are arising and passing moment after moment with each changing experience. And as we become more aware of their impermanence, we become less identified with them. We become less attached to the pleasant, less aversive to the unpleasant. Now we can understand this in the very ordinary process of simply growing up. Now think back to when you were a child, or if you know, if you can't remember that far back, but you know of children, you know, just watching them is so interesting because their emotional lability, you know, the changeability of the emotional state is so striking. I mean, kids can be laughing and having a great time one moment and burst into tears the next moment and then laughing again a few moments later because the mind is so 
reactive to the moment's experience. You know, it's pleasant and there's great joy and it's unpleasant and, you know, tears and just this very rapid change of emotions and reactions. But as we get older, we see more clearly the passing nature of the feelings. You know, we say, oh yeah, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, and our mind achieves a little more stability in regard to our ability to be with them and not to be so reactive. You know, so there's not this great emotional swing moment to moment. There's a greater sense of equanimity and ease. In one passage, the Buddha compares the play of feelings arising and passing away to the changing winds in the sky. And of course, you um, need to remember that he uh, lived in India, and so some of the descriptions have to do with the Indian uh, climate. Um, so he wrote, Just as many diverse winds blow back and forth across the sky, easterly winds and westerly ones, northerly winds and southerly ones, dusty winds and dustless winds, sometimes cold, sometimes hot, those that are strong and others mild, winds of many kinds that blow. So in the very body here, various kinds of feelings arise, pleasant ones and painful ones, and those neither painful nor pleasant. But when a bhikkhu, that's us, who is ardent, does not neglect clear comprehension, then that wise one fully understands feelings in their entirety. Having fully understood feelings, one is taintless in this very life, standing in the Dhamma, and with the body's breakup, this knowledge master cannot be reckoned. And that just refers to, at the break of the body, somebody who has mastered this understanding of feelings. That being has gone beyond birth and death. I like this phrase, the knowledge master cannot be reckoned, I mean, cannot be found, is not limited. Through this attention to feelings, So again, it's easy to understand that all these feelings of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral are all impermanent. And on some level we know this, but it's also difficult, often difficult, to sustain this awareness. You know, in both little and big ways, we find our minds over and over forgetting that they're impermanent, and becoming reactive to them. So in the meditation practice, and this is really the gift of a retreat, because noticing feelings, they are very fleeting, you know, and they are a more subtle aspect of the moment's experience. Now the more obvious aspect is the object itself and what's arising, the feeling tone, 
which is happening in each moment, that's a more subtle aspect of what's going on. And so it's really the gift of a retreat where we have the time and the focus you know, and the interest to really look at this level. We can begin to see the subtle and not so subtle movements of the mind. So for example, doing walking meditation, just in the walking, and a thought arises, oh, a cup of tea. Now there's a pleasant feeling associated with that thought. Right, that thought, cup of tea, when we're aware of it, there's a pleasant feeling that arises with it. So we can either note that pleasant feeling and watch both the thought and the feeling arise and pass away, or we miss the note of pleasant and get seduced by the idea that the cup of tea will actually make us happy. You know, because we're not seeing, we're not seeing. All that happened is just, it was a pleasant feeling that arose associated with that thought in the moment. And if we're not mindful, we just get pulled right into it and off for the cup of tea. And what's so interesting, even our anticipation of the happiness that we're going to get, we think it's the cup of tea. It's not the cup of tea. And you can, you know, it could be the piece of chocolate, it could be whatever. It's not the cup of tea that we're really after. It's the pleasant feeling associated with the cup of tea. But when we're focusing on the object, we think, oh, I need to have that, and that'll make me happy. When we focus on the feeling aspect, it's just a pleasant moment, whether it's of the initial thought, whether it's the actual drinking of the tea, when we're focusing on the pleasant feeling, we see how insubstantial it is, how ephemeral it is. And so there's a slight chance that we're less seduced by it. We can work with this in even stronger moments of pleasant feeling. Now, how is the mind, for example, when pleasant sexual feelings arise, pleasant sexual imagery? Now, that's a very pleasant sensation for most people. And the fantasies arise in the mind. At first, and I remember these days well. I mean, these fantasies would arise and I could just see the mind going right into the indulgence of them. This is nice. You know, and the hour goes really fast. <laughs> and it's quite enjoyable. <laughs> but then after one is, does this for about 10 zillion times, and sees that it really doesn't go anyplace. <laughs> so then the mind can get almost into a reactive space. You know, oh no, I, I don't want to do that. You know, and so kind of get into a certain struggle in the mind. Oh, here it comes again. Don't, don't do this. You know, and we get, uh, and I, I found there was almost a fear that would come up in the mind, you know, when these fantasies would come. 
And then after going through that phase for a while, you know, of being in that struggle, finally the mind settles down really into a place of just openness and sees it's just a pleasant feeling that's coming and going and it's not seduced by it, it's not fighting with it, it's just knowing it, it's just mindful of it. And there's a much greater sense of freedom. You know, the freedom of non-addiction, the freedom of non-resistance really seeing clearly their impermanent nature. There's one technique that I use, and I've mentioned this to some of the people I'm working with in interviews. It was a very powerful way for me of unhooking from the attachment, especially at a period of time when a lot of these fantasies were coming. And at first I would try to note, first just seeing, you know, as the images would come, seeing, seeing, didn't work. And then I started noting pleasant, 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 oh yeah, it's really pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) So that didn't work. And then somehow I just hit upon, it was a double note. And... Afterward, I I reflected that this double no, which I used, really was capturing the essence of the whole law of dependent origination. But at the time, I wasn't thinking that. But I just started noting, as soon as this image, this fantasy image would arise, I would note, contact, pleasant. And so it was two notes, contact, pleasant. And like that was enough to strengthen the mindfulness of the fact that there was contact with this object, right? which in this case was, a, was a, an image in the mind. So I was highlighting the fact, yeah, there's contact with the object, and in that contact it's pleasant. When I used that double note, it was like hitting the right acupuncture point. It was amazing, because with, psh, you could just feel the mind release from the desire, from the clinging, from the grasping. You know, and that's that whole chain of dependent origination. So I would, if you are caught in one way or another, and it doesn't have to be images, of course, it can be anything pleasant, anything unpleasant. When you feel like you're really caught and you're noting pleasant, unpleasant, it's not enough, try doing contact pleasant, contact pleasant, or contact unpleasant. You know, and just to see whether that helps the mind release from those habituated patterns. It's interesting, just as with these pleasant fantasies, it's also very interesting to pay attention to how the mind responds to unpleasant experiences, to unpleasant feelings painful feelings in the body, in the mind. So often we create stories about them. Instead of simply noting contact unpleasant, or simply unpleasant, we have some experience, some feeling state, feeling tone of unpleasantness, and create some kind of story about it. one point I was working a lot with fear. Fear was coming up a lot. 
and until I found the way to really be mindful of the fear and of the unpleasantness, I was caught for a long time in the story of, I'm such a fearful person. There's so much fear in my mind. It's going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind this. You know, so I was just creating this whole story of self. I was building a whole superstructure of self on top of a moment of unpleasant feeling associated with the fear. So it's helpful to watch that, you know, and to come right back to that place where we can actually free the mind from this sense of self, this sense of I. How is it when we feel ill? You know, it's unpleasant. What do we do with that? Do we kind of feel self-pity or sadness or whatever? Uh, The Buddha gave some very explicit instruction. He said, you should train like this. My body may be sick, yet my mind will not be afflicted. Well, that's a great teaching. So often we put certain situations outside of the practice. You know, we're, we're going along, we're really being mindful and trying to be continuous, and then we catch a cold or, or more serious illness. You know, and somehow, oh, well, when I get over this, or I feel better, I have more energy, then I can practice again. There's nothing outside of the practice. Those are simply situations of unpleasant feeling. And we can be as aware of that, as mindful of that, as free in that, as in any other kind of feeling. You know, as I think I've said at different times, I've found it very helpful to remember in times of unpleasant physical states, it's really a good training for dying. Because when we're dying, we probably won't feel that great. How will we be with that? You know, will we be free, open, or contracted and fearful? Every time you note and notice unpleasant, unpleasant, and drop into that mind space of simply knowing, non-reactive, it is a powerful training for the time of our deaths. We are actually practicing that now. You know, uh, Henry David Thoreau, this this is really one of my favorite stories. He died young. He died, I think, at 44 or in his 40s, and he died of TB. And he said he was so remarkable. I mean, he had this amazing wisdom that came from his you know, huge sensitivity to the, to the natural world, he said to friends who came you know, to visit him as he was dying, he said, there's as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, as the mind always conforms to the condition of the body. That's, that's a remarkable understanding. There's as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. 
because the mind always conforms. Basically, the mind no, the mind simply knows whatever the condition of the body is, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this, knowing this. So this is our practice. You know, as we go through the day, and by paying attention to the feeling tone, to the pleasantness, to the unpleasantness, to the neutrality we learn to abide more and more in that space. As we practice, you know, with some care and some open, not with a sense of struggle, and don't, don't make sort of a big agenda of this, it's just to open in the way that's appropriate for you in your practice. Begin to open to this understanding, to this refinement of awareness of the feeling tone of different experience. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? As we do this, we begin to see more and more deeply their impermanent nature. We become less entranced by them, less reactive to them. And in the words of one Tibetan teacher, we learn to rest our weary minds. What wearies our minds? It's the reactions to these feelings. Pleasant feelings come, we go after. Unpleasant feelings come, we push away. We rest our weary minds. I'd just like to close with this one last teaching of the Buddha. Which points to the depth of this kind of practice. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. So notice the impermanence, the changing nature of them. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of these feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana. Again, the Buddha is reiterating that lion's roar at the beginning of the sutta. This is the direct path to awakening. And this is one aspect of the teachings that we can uh, practice in our time here. Let's sit for a few minutes.
pleasant sound. Unpleasant sound. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.